Among the uglier mass human rights violations going on daily in the world, forced labor imposed on the Uyghur minority by China. Congress, in the Uyghur Forced Labor Prevention Act, gave U.S. Customs and Border Protection the job of gathering and publicizing this forced labor where it exists in worldwide industrial supply chains. With where the agency is in this effort, we turn to the Executive Director for Trade Remedy Law Enforcement in CBP's Office of Trade, Eric Choi. Mr. Choi, good to have you with us. Great to join you. Thanks, Tom. And what exactly is CBP's job in this law and generally trying to stop the fruits of forced labor from entering manufacturers' supply chains? CBP has already had the uh, requirements to stop the importation of goods produced with forced labor coming into the United States. This was already established in federal statute under the Tariff Act, was recently under the Trade Facilitation Trade Enforcement Act in 2016 really unbound CBP's authorities to prevent the importation or the entry into U.S. commerce of goods produced with forced labor into the United States. And with the passage of the Uyghur Forced Labor Prevention Act in late 2021, it created a, a rebuttable presumption which presumed that goods produced whole or in part from the Xinjiang region of China is created with forced labor, therefore then prevents the entry. Uh, and so CBP's responsibilities under the Uyghur Forced Labor Prevention Act is to figure out which goods are coming from whole or in part from the Xinjiang region of China and to prevent their entry into the commerce. And what are the types of goods that tend to come from that region? We know that as far as manufacturing goes from the Xinjiang region of China, that the PRC has moved a significant amount of energy intensive as well as dirty industries that really go towards leveraging raw materials and kind of creating those inputs that are used in downstream manufacturing production processes that ultimately end up in the goods that are further manufactured either in China or in third countries that end up in those goods that we consume here in the United States. And principally, if you think about those types of industries that are energy intensive, that or take a significant amount of agricultural footprint. Um, you're looking at you know, electronic inputs, apparel, textiles, footwear, as well as uh, industrial manufacturing materials. Right, so it could be like metal ingots or lead bricks, that kind of thing. That's correct. You know, aluminum, cotton. Uh, we know that under the UFLPA that there were specific commodities that were considered high priority. Those things that are specific in the statute identify cotton, polysilicon-based products, as well as tomatoes and tomato products. And recently, CBP staged a forced labor technical expo to show off this. What happened at the expo? Who went and what could they see there? And there are a significant amount of stakeholders when it comes to enforcing the prohibition on goods produced for labor. Certainly, first and foremost is industry, the manufacturers, the importers that are importing these goods. Then also there are our stakeholders across the federal interagency, our stakeholders in the legislative branch, as well as civil society that all kind of have somewhat of a stake with regards to how we can all work together towards identifying those goods and preventing those goods from coming into the United States. And so the Tech Expo is really designed for industry to industry engagement. We know that in the face of force labor enforcement since 2016, a, a significant industry has been growing to help industry identify and exercise due diligence within their supply chain. You know, these are leveraging things such as artificial intelligence, machine learning, as well as just looking at the types of data and the intelligence that's out there that could help companies do this type of due diligence in their own supply chains. And so ultimately, from an agency perspective, when we look at those goods potentially produced with force labor coming to the country, our hope is that companies in their own due diligence identify where those risks are overseas. And so this Tech Expo was really to showcase and give an opportunity for industry to showcase the types of technologies that are being developed, types of methodologies, but then present that back to industry 
to the trade stakeholders so they can conduct that due diligence. But there's also a significant piece in this is that understanding the gross atrocities that are occurring and why industry should care. And so that's why we had members from the federal interagency, as well as members from the Hill come and talk to the trade about how they can exercise due diligence and why the Uyghur Force Labor Prevention Act is so important and why working together uh, to prevent these goods from coming uh, into the United States is so important. We're speaking with Eric Choi. He's executive director for Trade Remedy Law Enforcement in the Office of Trade at U.S. Customs and Border Protection. And the supply chains themselves can be complicated because a lot of the materials you mentioned have distributors or they might be sold directly online through agents that's hard to identify through Amazon and so forth. And then industrial goods, you know, they have distributors and sometimes multi-level distribution. Does that complicate the end buyer, you know, knowing that this is not something they should be buying? It is incredibly complicated. Have we seen how diversified and multinational supply chains have become over the last couple of decades? It is very difficult. And we know that from an agency perspective, we know that exercising this due diligence, not only from industry's perspective, but also across the federal interagency, that it's a difficult task. And that's why we're really focused on working together to do this. Identifying where the risk exists in supply chains is a significant part of this. Once goods are already presented for entry at one of our 328 ports of entry, it's technically too late. And so knowing where these risks are, knowing what the resources are available and how that due diligence could be exercised before companies make purchasing decisions, before goods ever hit the water is the important part. And so doing the due diligence to understand how the specific inputs within specific goods at a specific tiers within the supply chain is really important. And now more than ever, not just for forced labor and social due diligence, but just also for good business practices, understanding how to create predictability within supply chains and understanding when goods will be delivered on time is important for business. So this is a collective kind of effort working together to work on forced labor due diligence, but also just good business practices. And you also have a dashboard now online. I'm looking at it now that tells a lot about shipments and what types of materials could be coming from that region of China. How has that developed and who do you expect to be tuning into that dashboard? So as I mentioned before, there's a significant amount of stakeholders that are really interested in how the enforcement is going. One, it helps to provide predictability uh, with regards to what types of goods and commodities are potentially being made from these supply chains that are linked back to the Xinjiang region of China. This dashboard is also CBP's commitment to provide as much transparency to the trade and to all the various stakeholders for this enforcement under the Uyghur Force Labor Prevention Act. We are aggregating this data quarterly to provide awareness of how the enforcement is going, what goods are impacted, and what the ultimate outcome of those goods as those supply chains are being reviewed. And so we're hoping that the dashboard itself will provide insight to all the various stakeholders to make good decisions in their own. And China has a lot of regions. It's a really big country geographically. How do we know that they're not having things produced by the Uyghurs in the forced labor areas and simply shipped and date stamped or whatever from somewhere across China and leaving the country from that port? That is a significant challenge. Again, the way that how diversified and multinational these supply chains are, understanding where the risk is and where the risk may reside within any supply chain is, is the first step. And the good news is that there's a significant amount of resources out there for industry and for all stakeholders to know where the risks may begin, right? And once we understand where those risks are, then we can make conscious decisions of how we structure our supply chain. So across the federal interagency, you have 
and it's not just the forced labor that's occurring uh, in the Xinjiang region of China, but also broadly globally around the world. There's a Department of Labor's list of goods, which identifies countries and the goods and the commodities that are suspected of being made or produced with forced labor and child labor. Department of State has a traffic in, in persons report that it publishes annually every year that talks about and categorizes and scores countries based on their human trafficking efforts and where the conditions of human trafficking and forced labor may be. But then there's also significant resources from civil society and academia that are actively looking at these conditions, They're actively looking at the Xinjiang region of China that provide detailed information to anyone that's interested of where these risks exist. And do you get cooperation from the large manufacturers that have the resources to take on this challenge, the Apples, the, the General Motors, you know, the Nikes, the Boeings, those types of companies? For sure, over the last uh, several years, uh, since CBP has really stepped up its enforcement on forced labor together with the Department of Homeland Security, we've seen a significant response, not only globally around the world from like-minded partners and countries, uh, but also from industry. And so we see a significant shifts uh, in supply chains where large companies, but also concerned companies are making changes to their supply chains and, and making changes to where they source goods. And to that being, with all the different capabilities and technologies that were showcased at our technology expo. We know that there are companies that are using these technologies and using these methodologies to inform their decision making. And, and we're seeing it. We're seeing changes. Eric Choi is executive director for Trade Remedy Law Enforcement in the Office of Trade at U.S. Customs and Border Protection. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you. It's a pleasure. And we'll post this interview along with a link to that dashboard at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Dr. David Wilson, president of Morgan State University. David has had a fascinating career and has garnered a long record of accomplishments from more than 30 years of experience in higher Education Administration, came to Morgan State in 2010 from the University of Wisconsin, where he was chancellor of both the University of Wisconsin Colleges and the University of Wisconsin Extension. Before that, he held numerous other administrative posts in academia, including vice president for the University of Outreach, associate provost at Auburn University, and um, associate provost of Rutgers. And when we were talking earlier, too, you had just mentioned that you had a um, a wonderful nomination at the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. And David, thank you so much for joining me. Uh, Shane, it is indeed a pleasure uh, to be invited into this conversation with you. It's not in your um, in the short bio here, but I also know you served in some capacity in the Obama administration. Yes, I did, as a matter of fact. As I was leaving the University of Wisconsin, where I oversaw the UW colleges, I accepted the presidency at Morgan. And on my way into the presidency at Morgan in 2010, my name was advanced to President Obama to be considered as a member of his board of advisors on historically black colleges and universities. And so I accepted and served there for eight years during his two terms. Amazing. You've had a fascinating career at numerous universities across the U.S. How did you become passionate about the education field and what are some of the biggest lessons that you've learned? First of all, I was made aware of a quote by Horace Mann, who was a great 19th century educator who really gave rise to public education in the United States. And he was the first to utter the phrase that education is the great equalizer. 
And why that resonated with me was because I grew up in abject poverty uh, in rural Alabama, and there was no law in Alabama as I was growing up that required black kids to go to school. Uh, I was kind of shut off from formal education on a consistent basis. I didn't get a chance to go to school full-time until I was in the seventh grade. We lived on property there that were owned by um, the white landowners. And so the um, owner of the property, a white woman, would bring down to this little shanty that we lived in, and she would bring Look and Life magazines. My mom, uh, she would make us as children plaster these pages of Look and Life magazines against the wall of this little shanty to keep the cold wind out. I would take a kerosene lamp and go around the walls reading those articles in Look and Life magazines, which is when I first came across the phrase of Horace Mann. Hmm. From that point on, I committed myself you know, to education. It's an amazing story, and two things occur to me. One, it's almost incomprehensible that this happened during our lifetime. You know, that to me is uh, almost shocking. It's also truly inspiring that you recognized that you could do more and sought out to do that and were successful at it. So when you think back on that experience, how has that informed, shaped, influenced your leadership position now as president of Morgan State? It, it had to have had an impact, but how would you articulate that? So if you go back to that Alabama environment, what I saw, it was just so many people, my own brothers and sisters who were 10 times smarter than I was. But my first five brothers were literate. They never got an opportunity to show the nation how brilliant they were. Therefore, I really took on this whole notion that my life had to be about ensuring that individuals who were drowning in potential and they didn't realize it would be in a position where they would realize it. I was never ever about positions that would enable me simply to replicate privilege. I don't care where you went to school. I don't care what type of family you came from. I think that's where sometimes we kind of get education wrong. Uh, We have institutions that want to define themselves based on how many students they don't admit. I'm about just the opposite, taking individuals who are absolutely stellar and don't realize it and bringing that into existence for them. You've had so many opportunities that you could do other things, perhaps, at um, larger organizations, but you're where you want to be on purpose, by design, for the kinds of reasons you just talked about, that it's, it's fulfilling. But can you talk a little bit more about that? There have been so many so-called top 50 institutions in the United States that have come aggressively after me. And, you know, I flirted with a couple of them, and I went home to Alabama because these two were very serious. And my family is brutally honest with me, and they keep me grounded. So I flew down and began to talk with them about these institutions that were coming after me, I was thinking they would be impressed. And when I finished, my youngest sister said to me, now, are you finished? Clearly, we are not understanding why you would even consider leaving Morgan. It just reassured me uh, that I'm living my purpose at Morgan. And it is joyful uh, to be at a place where 
you want to be versus being at a place where others think you should be. One question that I always have to ask, is there one leader or maybe a couple of leaders that have inspired you, that have, you mentioned Horace Mann, I don't know if if that fits in this category, but what might be a couple of leaders that you remember that, that inspired you, that gave you a purpose, helped shape your life? In 1989, when I was selected as a W.K. Kellogg Fellow, we had to be introduced to leadership that was different in a lot of ways than the leadership that we had been exposed to. In February of 1990, uh, Mr. Nelson Mandela was released, and that's where I wanted to go and meet Mr. Mandela. We had no idea that he would grant an audience, and he did. He granted an audience, and uh, Mr. Walter Sisulu did as well. So here I am, having grown up in Alabama, I harbored some anger toward the society there that kept me from realizing my potential and then kept so many others like me from ever realizing their potential. At the end of a conversation that we had, someone asked Mr. Sosulu, we're leaving this conversation thinking that you harbor no anger towards a society that locked you away for 27 years. Are we leaving with the correct conclusion? He said, I harbored no anger or bitterness toward the society that locked me away for all of those years because I and others like me knew that what we were doing was the right thing. If you commit yourself to doing the right thing, there should never, ever be any space in your heart for anger or bitterness. And that was transformational for me and why I respect and admire Mr. Nelson Mandela and Mr. Walter Sisulu today. That is a great story, and it, you know, with all the accomplishments through your life, I'm sure it had a great impact on your ability to, to go as far as you have, and you're still going. Well, uh, I, I have a takeaway in, in terms of leadership lessons I've learned. We would be well-served as a nation if I think we created these opportunities for young people at various stages to really, first of all, see the United States. And then we need that same opportunity globally. As a result, when you do that, you understand the history over here. You understand the culture over here. You understand, and you got to understand the world beyond an intellectual understanding. You want to think of your maturation in a way where your brain can never, ever, ever be hacked. <laughs> so that's sort of the way, that's sort I, of the I way that I kind of see all of that. You that's know? brilliant. <laughs> And um, being born in rural southwest uh, Kansas, flyover country, as they say, I can, I can tell you that your, your comments about travel and getting out, not just reading about it, but actually traveling, it, it really is important. It's absolutely critical for someone's personal development. I, I, I happen to think so. Well, Dr. <laughs> David Wilson, thank you so much. I love every single piece of today, but also your life story. It's really impressive, inspiring, and thank you for sharing it. Shane, thank you very much for inviting me to have this conversation with you again. And I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. We'll see you next time on the Lessons in Leadership podcast.